Hello and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. You can find information on previous and future presentations on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts, and you can see the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Winifred Curran from DePaul University. Wen is an associate professor of geography at DePaul, and her research explores the effects of gentrification on the remaking of the urban landscape through zoning, industrial policy, environmental remediation, education, and policing in cities like New York, Chicago, London, and Mexico City. While sustainability and green urbanism have become buzzwords in urban policy circles, many visions of the green city seem to have room only for park space, waterfront cafes, and luxury LEED-certified buildings, and not for industrial uses or their workers. Or to put it another way, the surge in environmental awareness in cities has not been matched with concern for social equity. Wen is here tonight to discuss a strategy she calls Just Green Enough, to allow for an urban sustainability that challenges the presumed inevitability of gentrification. Please join me in welcoming Winifred Curran. Thank you, David, and thank you all for coming. Um, So as David sort of mentioned, my interest here comes through gentrification, particularly in the way in which gentrification is being greened lately, since sustainability has become such an important Um, concept in urban planning circles, as cities really are at the forefront of environmental policy, right? We're sort of lacking a national environmental policy, so cities are making their own environmental policies and coping with environmental change in their own way. Um, And so my interest is in sort of expanding our understanding of what we mean by both environment and how we understand gentrification working. Um, And so the policy that or the strategy that I'm going to discuss um, tonight called Just Green Enough is about recognizing that we need to, to green the city, right? We have to sort of correct the mistakes of the industrial city and clean up the, the consequences of the industrial city without displacing the people who made the industrial city and are still, of course, constructing the city today, that the industrial city is not gone, right? We are not thoroughly in an entirely post-industrial age. Industry still exists. The working class still exists. So how do we make room in the city for them? Um, while also achieving the cleanup that is necessary. Um, So I'm going to do that today by um, looking at a couple of case studies from uh, Chicago and also New York, research that sort of brought me to this um, issue in the first place. Um, But first, of course, I think what we need to do (laughs) is understand what we mean by sustainable development. And so I've taken this from... um, the Brundtland Commission report, the UN report on um, environment and development from 1987, which has sort of defined the way we think about sustainability. Um, And so what I've quoted here is that sustainable development um, is necessary for a world in which poverty and and inequity are endemic will always be prone to ecological and other crises. Sustainable development requires meeting the basic needs of all and extending to all the opportunity to satisfy their aspirations for a better life. So sustainability is all about equity, right? It's not primarily or should not primarily be about the environment. And I think too often our discussions of sustainable urbanism focus on that environmental aspect without really paying enough attention to the social justice aspect of the city. And that, of course, these two things go together, that the parts of the city that have been 
um, most sort of ravaged by environmental crisis um, are the parts of the city that uh, that are most socially unjust, you know, because of racism, um, immigration policy, you know, a whole host of um, factors that have led to segregation in the city, the people who are most disadvantaged are the ones who also then most suffer the negative consequences of environmental degradation. Um, and that, so therefore, the accomplishing sustainable urban development is about, is about changing that, fixing that, um, sort of rectifying the mistakes of, of the past, and not sacrificing equity for this concept of livability, right? That in a lot of sort of sustainability um, policy circles, that what has become um, sort of popular is this concept of li- what makes cities livable, what makes people want to live in urban neighborhoods, walkability, um, park space, public transportation, these kinds of things. Um, and of course, everyone knows what makes a neighborhood livable, right? We know what makes good urban neighborhoods. Um, they've existed for years. The question is, how do we make good urban neighborhoods that serve a variety of people, right? That serve people who have been most disadvantaged um, and who have lived in those neighborhoods that have not been considered livable, right? And so the, the danger with, with cleanup is that we clean up spaces for a new population. We clean up spaces for people who can afford those new amenities that we're creating and thusly just just recreate the inequalities of the past. Um, And that is the concept of environmental gentrification. And so, um, again, just to sort of outline how I view environmental gentrification, this comes from an article by Melissa Checker, um, who describes environmental gentrification as the convergence of urban redevelopment, ecologically-minded initiatives, and environmental activism in an era of advanced capitalism. Operating under the seemingly apolitical rubric of sustainability, environmental gentrification builds on the material and discursive successes of the urban environmental justice movement and appropriates appropriates them to serve high-end redevelopment that displaces low-income residents. So why I like this definition is that it recognizes why gentrification is important is to me, um, is because it is about displacement, right? So we can, um, there, there have been decades and decades of debate about sort of what gentrification is, what causes gentrification, you know, is it a good thing, is it a bad thing? Um, and in part, this will depend on how you define gentrification. For me, what is essential to gentrification, what makes gentrification gentrification, is displacement. And so in that respect, that's, that's why it's a cause for concern. That's why we want to try to avoid environmental gentrification, because then by definition that means accomplishing environmental cleanup, accomplishing environmental uh, amenities in order to displace the working class, right? Um, and so that's, that's the, what makes this a social, a social justice issue and what, what makes um, environmental cleanup so kind of politically loaded. Um, because we want to achieve these things at the same time that we want to be able to do it for um, a diverse population in a city that is diverse, right? That, that environmental gentrification is about serving a particular class of people in a particular um, economic sector primarily, right? That there has been a, so much written in um, planning and policy circles about Richard Florida's notion of the creative class and that this is is the group of people that cities need to attract if they're going to be competitive in the global economy. And of course, that group of people is, by definition, a small group of people, right? They are the elite. Um, Not every city can plan, can build entirely and exclusively for the creative class. Um, So how do we make environmentally friendly 
um, socially just, sustainable cities that serve a population beyond just the creative class, since that's bound to be a losing proposition if every city is just trying to attract the same small population of people. Um, and so that's why I want to sort of explore uh, uh, this notion of environmental gentrification so that we can avoid environmental gentrification and look at ways to be really sort of comprehensive in our understanding of how we can green space while serving the entirety of the urban population. Um, And so that means opening up our idea of what cities can be and do. Um, And I think so part, and you'll see from the case studies that I've chosen, um, I'm particularly interested in the industry, like what is still left of the industrial city and how we sort of cope with that and modernize that and do we want it um, and the people, of course, that go with it. Um, and so this is from a very recent article about um, environmental gentrification in San Francisco. Um, and Dylan argues that the term post-industrial and cleanup are misnomers that obscure the multiple ways industrialization remains a persistent feature of everyday life. Brownfield redevelopment, rather than representing a clean break with an industrial past, often reproduces the social relations of an older industrial economy, particularly those related to racial and health injustices. Um, And so that is part of why then post-industrial is also its own sort of dangerous term, is that it it can accomplish post-industrial. What what is actively industrial can become quite easily post-industrial because urban planners and city policymakers view that as the way to be a successful city, the way to be a global city, Um, so that we have many ways in which we can actively achieve deindustrialization in areas where industry has managed to survive despite the global economy. Right, so that industry doesn't need to be dead, um, but it certainly will be if we actively kill it. Right, if we if we zone it out of existence, if we sort of create all sort of um, nuisance policies that make it difficult to to do industrial in the city, then you not only displace that section of the economy, but of course displace the workers. Um, who are there, who have been such an important sort of an active part of, um, of constructing the city. And that, that process, you know, sort of just referring to that as post-industrialism as though it is a global inevitability masks the active decision-making that creates post-industrial landscapes and just naturalizes the disappearance of the working class in the city. Um, and so the, the um, case studies that I've chosen um, for today kind of highlight the ways in which this, you know, this can happen, but also what I really want to concentrate on today is the ways in which we can contest that, right? That this is not inevitable. Um, so part of why I kind of got into this work was that much of what was being written about environmental gentrification, particularly in a lot of this literature is in, in geography, but clearly in planning as well, um, is to sort of comment on and recognize the existence of environmental gentrification, but to sort of assume that it's inevitable, that as soon as you know, sort of capital becomes interested in certain sites within the city that and and you clean those up and you make them environmentally friendly that by definition that will result in the displacement of pre-existing uses and populations and and I want to contest that notion that that displacement has to be inevitable that this is just sort of a natural evolution of, of urban process that the working class will be displaced from places that have been sort of rediscovered as environmentally detra- uh, environmentally attractive after post-industrial after the accomplishment of post-industrialization um, and so again as I mentioned the two case studies that I'm going to highlight tonight are about sort of recognizing the potential for mixed use and mixed income and just a sort of much fuller understanding of what an urban economy and landscape can be while still trying to achieve some sort of sustainability, right, both environmentally but also from a socially just point of view. 
Um, so the first case study is here in Chicago, um, the Fisk Power Plant. <clears throat> so I've been doing um, work on gentrification in Pilsen since about 2004. Um, and, and so Pilsen's gentrifying, right? We all know <laughs> that that is obvious. Um, and so the, the closure of the Fisk Power Plant just this past September opens up this interesting new sort of space um, both literally and figuratively, for what Pilsen is going to look like. So this is, you know, clearly a historically port of entry community, overwhelmingly immigrant, now primarily Mexican American, um, with a working class, you know, sort of economic profile. Uh, and the Fisk Power Plant has been, um, you know, sort of historically part of the, you know, defining of the industrial corridor that has made Pilsen a port of entry community. Um, and that, of course, is being um, threatened by gentrification, right? That, that um, Pilsen in the most recent census has been losing population of, of, of Mexicans, has seen an increase in the population of, of whites, um, an increase in people with college degrees, an increase in average income. So we know that gentrification is happening, but does that then automatically mean that when you have this you know, sort of massive industrial space opened up um, for potential redevelopment, that there is only one way to do that redevelopment, right? And that, that's part of what I'm interested in here is how sort of globally we do seem to be increasingly coming to very similar conclusions about what sites like this have to become, right? So a, a, a corollary, is, corollary is in London, the Battersea Power Plant um, is being redeveloped as very high-end residential um, and retail, getting a new tube stop. Um, you know, and is that, is that what has to happen to industrial space in order to be successfully kind of reincorporated into the post-industrial global city? Um, and so, of course, clearly here, my argument is no. Um, but, it's, but this provides a, a particular sort of moment of contention, right? How do we see this space, and how do we see the possibilities for reforming the space? And perhaps most importantly, who gets to decide? Um, so, and in Pilsen, there's a, you know, it's not just Fisk, right? It is this loaded, um, so this is a map of the industrial corridor um, in Pilsen, and so you'll see that, um, so Fisk is around here, but that's part of this larger constellation of industrial uses that has defined Pilsen for so long, and of course, along with those industrial uses have come all the negative consequences of those industrial uses, right? So Pilsen was kind of on the map recently because of, um, is a recognition of how incredibly high lead levels are in the air um, on the monitoring station on top of an elementary school, right? That, and that this is something that people in Pilsen have been dealing with for generations. Um, <clears throat> uh, and so that part then of any redevelopment of Fisk, but of, of redeveloping anything in Pilsen and, and what should happen in Pilsen is recognizing and doing as much as possible to correct the negative effects of that industrial legacy um, at the same time that we don't then just dismantle all that is industrial, right? So one of the big concerns for people, for community activists in, in Pilsen and the group I work with is called the Pilsen Alliance, um, is that Fisk will be this sort of wedge to deindustrialize the rest of the industri industrial corridor as other spaces become attractive. Um, so because we know that while the Fisk power plant itself may not be very um, attractive for, for residential redevelopment, for example, there, 
there are plenty of industrial sites along the corridor that are, that sort of have the architecture that is attractive for those um, interested in, in sort of loft living and the loft habitus, as it's been um, described. And there have been um, moves by the alderman, Alderman Solis and Pilsen, to allow for, you know, he's brought up, it has not happened yet, but um, the potential for residential use, particularly in artists' lofts. Um, closer to the Halstead Corridor in Pilsen, which is already, of course, being called the Pilsen Arts District um, in what used to be industrial territory, right? So, so there is this fear that any sort of, um, that environmental improvements are simply an attempt to displace the existing land uses and the populations that, that go with that. Um, and so that's why the nature of the industrial corridor of Pilsen is so important. So it sort of defines the way in which people in Pilsen have been marginalized because of just the density of industrial use and all the negative environmental consequences that go along with that. But that also that is not always necessarily a bad thing in terms of this was also how people became middle class, right? They had union jobs at places like the Fisk power plant. Um, and so for many, the closure of Fisk is not automatically and only a good thing. Um, because, it does, because it comes with this concern about what happens in terms of economic development as a result. What happens when union jobs go away? Those are not easy to get, and they, go, they don't come back easily. Um, and there are other, other sites in Pilsen with a similar um, um, sort of profile, uses that are you know, sort of actively um, destructive in terms of the environment, but that are important sort of anchors from an economic point of view for a working class population. So how do we, um, you know, how do we sort of mitigate the effects of that um, in both ways? You know, mitigate the environment, the negative environmental consequences, but then neg uh, mitigate the negative economic consequences that go with any remediation that might happen on the site. Um, so this is an so this is an overview of the Fisk site. Um, so this will not be an easy site to redevelop, right? This is the sort of main um, turbine here. And that um, the site is about 42 acres. Um, and much of it will remain um, in terms of the electrical grid. So like these power lines and these peaker towers um, will stay there. So that makes this a very difficult site to, to, to really plan around in a sort of holistic way. And so, the, and of course, these just closed in September, and no decisions have been made about what's actually going to happen. But there's been a community task force, and um, so community mem members have had a chance to sort of voice their opinions about what should happen. And there is a real sort of consensus among long-term residents. Well, first of all, just environmentally, it's not appropriate for residential conversion. Right? It's too it's too polluted. We don't, and of course, part of the problem, we don't actually know how polluted it is. No one's releasing any sort of information exactly what's in the soil. What would it take to remediate it? And of course, to remediate it to what level, right? There are different requirements for different land uses. Um, so we don't even know exactly how toxic an environment we're dealing with um, to start off with. But to, as an indicator, the you know, um, estimates are that approximately 40 people a year die because of the power because of the Fisk power plant. You know, die earlier than they would have otherwise um, because of the pollution from Fisk. So that's not an inconsequential, um, cons you know, inconsequential um, aspect to consider when talking about the redevelopment of Fisk. Um, but there is a vision that is clearly not about just you know sort of green space and high end use, um, but 
that very clearly articulates a desire for for living wage jobs, that that is sort of first and foremost the priority for residents of Pilsen, so that even though, again, they're glad that the power plant is closing, it is not, that, that is not just uncontested as a universal good, right? How do we um, make this site useful for working class residents of Pilsen is the concern of community activists in Pilsen. Um, and so that's not, um, that's not an easy, there's no easy answer to that, right? In part because the site also doesn't provide any sort of easy answers. Um, there is, the assumption is that somewhere along the river there will be park space, that there is a, a sort of plot that Midwest Generation, who owns the site, um, is willing to basically give to the city and that, so that there will be green space um, and access to the water, but what happens to the rest? And of course, the, as you can kind of see from the site, this is not you know, an integral part of the neighborhood, right? It is separate, it's not an easy sort of pedestrianized access. Um, and that, of course, is part of another sort of legacy of industrialization in Pilsen is that people have been cut off from the river and that that used to be considered a good thing, right? That you didn't, you weren't exposed to sort of the mess and toxicity that the river was, but now that we consider waterways to be an environmental amenity, how do we give people access who have been denied access? Um, for decades, but also how do we do that in a way that doesn't just evict the memory of all that went before, right? So that part of this um, is about sort of recognizing the role that Fisk and therefore Pilsen played in the evolution of Chicago and therefore, you know, in the, in the larger um, sort of trope of American urbanism, right? That Fisk, when it opened in 1903, was the largest steam turbine in the world, was the first to be run entirely on steam. You know, this was a major engineering accomplishment. Thomas Edison was a visitor. Um, the original um, building site is, um, you know, has been rec recognized for architectural value. Um, so there is history here that community activists don't want just sort of glossed over, that we make pretend as though it, it never happened. And so then, so part of the sustainable city, the just city, and the greener city is recognizing the negative effects that were the result of coal-powered um, coal-fueled power plants, but also sort of respecting and honoring the legacy of the people who accomplished these great things at the time that we thought that they were great things, right? So, to not just sort of gloss over the importance of what Pilsen, as a working-class industrial neighborhood, contributed to the history of Chicago. Um, and so uh, one move afoot within the community is to look at how to turn this into something that is actively about you know, image creation and recognition of, of the history of the site um, so that people understand the, the, the way in which it is all integrated into the rest of the neighborhood so that the you know, sort of gentrifying parts of Pilsen are not that close necessarily to, to this but are part, you know, part of what, you know, why is Pilsen attractive for gentrification? All the things that made it attractive um, as a port of entry community for immigrants are part of what's being rediscovered in the process of gentrification, right? It's, you know, proximity to downtown, access to public transportation, you know, historic building stock to some extent. Some people basically say that the historic building stock in Pilsen can't actually be saved um, because it's been in decline for so long. But, you know, the, it is the uniqueness of Pilsen that makes it attractive for gentrification. So how do we preserve the uniqueness of Pilsen so that, it, so that we can also preserve the people who made it so unique in the first place. Um, you know, that's sort of this, this battle in environmental gentrification. How do we make sure that the community is the one that decides what happens to this site 
as opposed to environmental um, remediation being um, imposed from above. Um, and so it, this is very much an open question, right? There's no, there is no answer at the moment. There's a lot of talk of community involvement. There have been community meetings, um, but at the moment, Midgen still owns the site, right? So the privately owned site, the city doesn't have the power to just do with it what it will. Um, and we don't know what interest will come from developers in terms of reworking the site, which, as I mentioned, is a very sort of difficult site to, to rework. So there's sort of two potential, at least two potential avenues here. Um, that are also unattractive. Um, one is that um, if we can get rid of all the infrastructure, and this just becomes an open site ready for development on the river, that, that then we do see um, a sort of pure environmental gentrification move wherein this becomes high-end luxury housing or at least, you know, or high-end retail, high-end, you know, the, the idea of highest and best use regardless of what that is for this particular site. Um, and, and we lose the, the, the history and the community activism that went into getting this closed in the first place, right? Um, and so, and that, and this sort of displacement of the working class in that way, or this is a very difficult site, and so maybe nothing happens, and we just leave it that way, and it just declines even further, and that becomes its own um, environmental um, you know, sort of disamenity that people in the neighborhood have to live with, right? And that there must be some sort of middle ground between those two options, wherein this can be done, can become a productive part of the neighborhood without actively displacing anyone in the neighborhood. Um, and so one neighborhood that, um, well, and let me get to sort of one part of this that makes residents fearful, um, which may seem sort of counterintuitive. So you may recognize or already know that Pilsen, a stretch of Cermak in Pilsen, has been called the greenest street in America. Right, and so this is, this details, this is just a fun little graphic from um, the city site uh, of what makes it so green. But you'll recognize, or maybe you won't show it that great, but this is the smokestack from, um, from Fisk right there, right? So the greenest street in America is down the block from you know, one of the last two coal-burning power plants in the state of Illinois, um, or, you know, was until September. Um, and so in one way, this could be incredibly hopeful, right, that this is, that these two things sort of can go together, even though, of course, you know, FISC is not actively being used right now, but that we, we recognize the way in which these, you know, we can sort of be green in an industrial corridor, right, that those things don't have to be diametrically opposed. Um, but then you come across a quotation from one of the people who is responsible for this, which was, um, so uh, Jeanette Atari and a team of engineers began developing conceptual plans for a sustainable urban streetscape. They settled on this stretch of East Pilsen because of how badly it needed the infrastructure upgrade. It's also a transitioning community, says Tarian. Formerly a, majorly a major industrial corridor, this part of Cermak between Ashland and Halstead has become increasingly residential and commercial as the days of major urban industry come to a close. Right? So this is why this is problematic. That is this attractive, you know, this is that we are interested in greening this precisely because it no longer serves the people who historically define Pilsen. Right, that's why this is problematic. Um, that it is the, ch you know, and even referring to it as a formerly industrial hub. Well, let me just fast forward to the, look at all that industrial, <laughs> right? There's nothing former about it. Um, and so, but that sort of thinking will, is, will very quickly accomplish a formerly 
industrial hub, right? If we make it impossible for industry to survive, if we rezone all of this so that it is no longer home to industry, as has happened, so much of Pilsen is in an industrial TIF, but parts of the industrial TIF were rezoned um, for a plan that never happened because of the Great Recession. Um, but on 18th Street in Peoria, what was in the industrial TIF ended up being rezoned for, as a special district that was going to allow for high density, high-end retail, and, um, and residential uses that only didn't happen because the developer went out of business. Um, so so industri you know, preserving industrial space um, doesn't actually mean anything, right? We can zone it all we want, but then because we, we will allow for the possibility of change, a lot of these businesses will feel insecure and not know how to plan for the future, not be hiring people that they might otherwise have hired. Um, so that sort of assumption of post-industrialism can, can very quickly become the realization of actual post-industrialism. Um, and that, that furthermore, that, that even if it remains post, if it remains industrial, that somehow that wouldn't be deserving of the greenest street in America. I mean, obviously, it doesn't necessarily a, a street like Cermak that is a major, you know, hub for truck transport is not an obvious choice for the greenest city in America. But those are exactly the spaces that need to be mitigated the most, right? So that that, um, you know, but the, the idea that it it's only becomes worthy of greening. Um, of you know, sort of investment in, in sustainability once it becomes sort of deindustrial and and um, has experienced a transition in terms of the population who lives there, that's what causes concern to residents in Pilsen. So that it becomes, um, you know, that that it, does there have to be this sort of paradox between either you're green, um, you know, or you are able to actually stay in the city, right? That the, the working class can stay in the city, um, and I'll just sort of highlight from the. Another aspect of this, this is pop, that is popping up around the Chicago. Um, you'll notice that inherent to the greenest street in America is, are of course, bike lanes. Right? That that's that this is part of the way in which we sort of make the city greener and, and more friendly. Um, and that neighborhoods around Chicago are are fighting the bike lanes because they see them as gentrification lanes. Basically, right? That, that the bike lanes are being built not for the people who live in the neighborhood to, you know, combat childhood obesity or anything, um, but to attract a very particular type of person, right? And this has been made quite explicit by Mayor Emanuel, actually, who's gotten into a little sort of shouting match of sorts with the mayor of Seattle when Chicago announced its plan for, uh, for new bike lanes specifically on Dearborn, but of course citywide, and um, some blogs in, in places like Portland and Seattle. We're talking about how they were jealous of Chicago's bike paths, that Chicago was sort of planning on, on a scale that they would like to see replicated in Portland and Seattle. And, um, and Mayor Emanuel quoted these blog posts and said, That's, yeah, we're coming for your bikers because we want those high-tech jobs. Right? That, that you know, those, two, th those are the same thing. And of course, the mayor of Seattle responded, thank you. We will hold on to both our bikers and our high-tech jobs. But this idea that that's who that is for. Right? That it is not, the bike lane is not democratic. Right? And so in neighborhoods like West Garfield Park and Humboldt Park, community residents are actually fighting bike lanes because they see it as a hallmark of gentrification. And that if we actually want to achieve a sustainable city, we can't have that. Right? We can't have people assuming that any sort of environmental amenity will result in their displacement. Right? Then we don't have buy-in from, from you know, all of the community. And that's not going to be a genuinely sustainable society a genuinely sustainable city in any way, shape, or form. Um, so that leads me then to my next case study, which um, I'm sort of 
proposing as an example of ways in which we can look for a sort of new politics of sustainability, ways in which the, the idea of you know, sort of working class here and gentrifying class here are, and are always sort of diametrically opposed and can't you know, make nice and live together doesn't have to be the case, that the, the idea of sustainability, our sort of fully understood and realized notion of sustainability, prevents, um, presents rather new spaces, um, new opportunities for um, a politics for urban change that unites you know, um, sort of constituencies that historically have not been, um, have not had sort of the same interests. Um, and so this case study in, um, is in Brooklyn, New York, uh, and specifically around Newtown Creek, which is um, the body of water that separates Brooklyn from Queens. Um, and so I show you this map to show you basically the constellation of toxicity that um, sort of similar to Pilsen, um, Williamsburg Greenpoint has um, has experienced. So this here is uh, so National Grid um, is here. So that's um, electricity. We have one, two, three, four um, oil refineries historically that they're dealing with the pollution as a result of that. We have the wastewater um, treatment tank, and we have a Department of Environmental Protection sludge um, tank as well. Um, so that's the sort of constellation of toxicity that's being dealt with in Williamsburg and Greenpoint. Um, at the same time that all the areas highlighted in blue are um, industrial areas that were rezoned for mixed use, which um, in fact has become high-end, high-end, you know, luxury housing, right? Mixed use, basically, especially in New York City, automatically means that it's going to turn into high-end residential. So, how do these things coexist, and what do we do about it? Um, so I will show you a picture of Newtown Creek in particular. So there's Newtown Creek. So why Newtown Creek matters, um, and so there's a lot going on in this picture but that I'll get to. So Newtown Creek is one of the most polluted bodies of water in the country. Um, sometime in the 1950s, it experienced an oil spill of between 17 and 30 million gallons. They still have not sort of narrowed down the exact size, and there's some who think that even the 30 million estimate is conservative, um, that this was the result um, of one particular explosion, but also a, a history of um, just using the creek as, as, uh, as a dumping ground. Um, and of course, using the neighborhood around the creek as a dumping ground. So historically, this was an area that had, um, it had sugar refineries, it had tanneries, it had breweries, it had oil refineries, it had glass making and metal smithing and fat rendering plants. So, you know, just a whole bevy of things that made the industrial city so wonderful. Um, and that is now being um, sort of dealt with um, after decades and decades of trying to get this cleaned up. So as I said, the original spill was in the 1950s. It was um, rediscovered or discovered in 1978 by the US Coast Guard on a routine air patrol who saw the sheen on the water and were like, you know, what's that? Um, and so technically, at that, that's when cleanup was supposed to begin. Um, and in 1990, the state signed a consent decree with um, the, the primary sort of culprit here, historically having taken over from previous, um, previous businesses, is ExxonMobil, um, is, is sort of the target these days. Um, and, but no cleanup happened all through the 80s and 90s. Nothing was actually accomplished. Um, and so then again in 2004, Riverkeeper, which is an environmental organization, again rediscovered the oil spill um, and after negotiations with ExxonMobil and the state filed suit against ExxonMobil, the state of New York um, followed in 2007. Um, and this is an announcement um, in 2010 
by now Governor Cuomo. He was the attorney general who filed the suit against ExxonMobil in 2007, um, announcing that a settlement had been reached with ExxonMobil, that they would actually clean it up, <laughs> um, and that um, they would give $20.5 million to the community for environmental projects. So there would be um, envi- an environmental benefits program. Um, and so, uh, so this picture sort of highlights all of Newtown Creek in that there's the waterway, right? It's wildly polluted. You know, all you have to do is look at it and you can see the oil sheen on it. But this picture also shows you why this neighborhood is a target for gentrification. Or in fact, has been, it's not a target, it's gentrified. Right. <laughs> Mission accomplished. It is gentrified um, because you can see that's the Empire State Building. That's the Chrysler Building. Um, you're not going to get a better view of Manhattan than you can get from Williamsburg and Greenpoint and Brooklyn. So gentrification has happened. That's not the issue. The issue is despite that gentrification, industrial uses have remained. Not all of them, <laughs> but there are industrial uses that have managed to stay in the city. And this is actually one of this building that you can't see very well, is the Greenpoint Manufacturing and Design Center, which is a nonprofit that houses small-scale manufacturing enterprises. Um, and so that so is an example of manufacturing being able to survive and thrive in an urban neighborhood um, if, it's a, if it is allowed to have that space. Um, And so when I first started doing research on Newtown Creek, um, I thought this was a classic case of environmental gentrification, right? So here we have a a major environmental disaster that no one pays attention to for decades. And then all of a sudden in 2007, um, the rezoning that I showed you on on that map happened in 2004 and 2005. You know, so all of a sudden after we get this incredibly intense gentrification of the neighborhood, that's when we see interest from the state um, and also the federal government. So this was also declared a um, Superfund site in 2010. They happened very close together, the settlement with ExxonMobil and the Superfund designation. Um, you know, that all this state attention is coming to the site because of gentrification, right? So. Um, um, so that was sort of ha- how I went into this, thinking about it. But in fact, that's, that's really not what happened. Gentrification um, you know, happened and was useful to a certain extent in accomplishing cleanup, but the main movers and shakers were long-term community residents, um, one of whom is actually sitting right here, uh, <laughs> Christine Hollowitz, who, um, women who have been, so one of the... Um, one of the lawyers for Riverkeeper who, who started sort of pushing um, on this and, and giving them kind of the institutional framework through which to engage in this environmental activism um, basically said that the environmental activists in, in Greenpoint used to be five angry women. <laughs> These, it's, a, it's an overwhelmingly immigrant neighborhood, in this case Polish. Um, these five Polish women who just were pushing and pushing and pushing, were contacting every public official, and just kept it on the table. Um, And even after gentrification happened, so gentrifiers would come in, form their own community groups, they would join them, right? And so they basically took it upon themselves to school the gentrifiers, to school the new residents in the environmental history of the neighborhood. And what that did was to create this new alliance, these new strategic political alliances that made the long-term residents, many of whom are, are industrial workers, right, so who are actively engaged in wanting to preserve the industrial use that remains along the creek, um, making them allies with gentrifiers who realized that they had been kind of duped into this neighborhood with this, with this long toxic history that no one told them about until they were already there. Right, so, and that it was actually sort of gentrification that um, that um, unveiled the scale 
of the environmental disaster in Newtown Creek because as new sites were being dug up for construction, you could smell the oil in the ground. You would see oil seeping up from the dirt. And so people were like, What's go you know, what don't we know? Um, and that has led to a whole bunch of studies about, you know, different competing maps about how far the oil has spread underground, you know, what cleanup will look like, how clean is clean. Um, and so that's what gets me to my title for this talk of Just Green Enough, that the, the argument of environmental activists in, um, in Greenpoint and Williamsburg has been, we want cleanup, but we want to stay. <laughs> and so what that means is we want to keep our industrial uses. So we want this waterway to be clean. We want to be able to boat in it. Um, perhaps we don't want to swim in it. No, no one really thinks that's going to happen anytime soon, though people did, people did and do um, swim in the creek. People did and do fish in the creek, even though, I mean, you are really taking your life in your hands if you do that. Um, but, uh, but to just in, be able to engage with the waterway in some way, and, and again, one that opens up the history of the creek, that sort of represents that what is great about New York is not just that skyline, but the other side too. And that what made that skyline is all the crap that got dumped into the water, right? That those are, those are the flip sides of the same coin. Um, and to recognize the history and the importance of both. Um, and so the, the activists have created a, a nature walk that has been termed by journalists as the world's most ironic nature walk. Because, really, because what you see are, uh, are barges with crushed cars going by. You can see the oil. Um, you know, there are some trees, but there's not a whole lot of blooming that's going on yet. Um, but, and that's, that's a good thing for long-term neighborhood um, residents and activists, they want you to see what the neighborhood was, what they lived with for all those decades, right? So it's not about, oh, we have a nature walk on the water because now we, you know, we love the water, we value the water. It's like, no, look at the crap we were living with. And, and that's, what, that's, you know, that's part of the city too. And we want to sort of respect and acknowledge what, what, what went before um, as we clean up and to make space for all of the people who, who actively constructed the city, um, who make it, again, sort of the attractive place that it is for gentrification, right? Because it is those industrial users um, who make the loft space that's so attractive for gentrification in a neighborhood um, like Williamsburg and Greenpoint. Um, so I'll just sort of finish up with my, my um, uh, you know, how we sort of see this new vision of green with some excerpts from um, interviews that I did in 2009 um, of the sort of concern about what cleanup will mean, that a lot of people who have suffered through this scar, this industrial past, they probably won't be around to see this clean new area. But at the same time, I don't think that means we shouldn't clean it up. Right, so, so my argument for it's kind of the preservation of the working class in the city is not like, well, we'll just leave it dirty then because <laughs> the working class is willing to put up with it, right? We have to accomplish cleanup, but how do we do it in a way that everyone gets to benefit? Um, for as another one of my um, informants said, there's a textbook approach to environmentalism and then there's reality. And reality is that for all the love of trees and nature and everything, people have to have jobs, they have to have a place to live. And so our understanding of sustainability has to recognize the importance of that and has to make room um, for the, that population, for those people in, in our sustainable city. That in fact, we can't really have a sustainable city if we displace the working class from it entirely, as some cities are starting to learn now. You know, when your working class has to commute two or three hours to work, they're not your working class anymore, right? You know, who's cleaning the office buildings? Who, who are the dry cleaners? Who are the waiters and the delivery people? Um, you know, we need that diverse city um, to be a great city. 
Um, and so then I'll just sort of finish this. This is potentially either a hopeful or really scary sign. This is a dolphin um, in Newtown Creek in 2010. Um, and so I could finish on a like, oh, there's a dolphin in Newtown Creek. And look, green, like we can recapture you know, nature in the city. Um, at this, or I could tell you what sort of <laughs> actually happened. Um, the dolphin didn't die or anything, so don't worry about that. But, um, you know, but, but scientists were like, get that thing out of there now. There's no way it can survive because the water is so incredibly polluted. Um, but I'll choose to end it on a hopeful note. <laughs> that, that, you know, hey, the dolphin was there and it did not drop dead upon contact with Newtown Creek. So, um, you know, that there, there has to be sort of the space for all of these things, right? And how, you know, isn't that what we love about cities, that you can get, you know, the graffiti um, and the dolphin at the same time? And isn't th that's a sustainable city. If you could actually sort of maintain the processes that enable both of those things, then we've, then we've gotten someplace, right? And, and so my, my sort of plea, my... my um, um, sort of point in all this research is that, you know, as, as we are increasingly focused on sustainability, and I say this as someone who, in a program who's starting a master's in sustainable urban development in September, for those of you who are looking for something to do, um, that, that we have to really have a very open and just conceptualization of what that is if we're going to undo the mistakes and the discrimination of the industrial, you know, to make the post-industrial, the green, the sustainable city um, any more just than the industrial city was. Thank you. And now, as we open this up to Q&A, I just want to remind everyone that because we're recording this for a podcast, I'm going to come around with this microphone so that we can record your questions. So just put your hand up, and I'll come to you. Um, I'm a little confused about your use of the term working class as though it were a social class or an economic class. I mean, let's face it, plumbers and electricians and auto workers make a lot of money. So are they the working class you refer to? Uh, yes. <laughs> they don't control their own. They, they are not masters of capital. They are servants of it. So yes, they are the working class. <laughs> Um, yeah, but just because people make, I mean, I think there's a, I, I think it's, I think the working class is both an economic term and a social one. Um, you know, I think there is, uh, there are certain sort of um, allegiances and alliances that um, are formed by virtue of where you fall in the, in the economic hierarchy, in the, you know, sort of in the industrial hierarchy and what um, sectors of the economy you work that, um, yet plumbers may make a lot of money. Are they seen with the same respect by um, you know, Richard Florida and his notion of the creative class as a graphic designer? No, right? Um, and we could describe both as the working class in a way, depending on, you know, who you are and what you do and how, how much you get paid. But um, I think there has been a systematic devaluing of blue-collar jobs in, in our move to the global city. Um, and, and that is part of my concern as well, to, to, to um, give precedence to one economic area over others in a way that it will absolutely um, negatively affect the city, right? That we, we need that balanced economic base to be a successful city. If you only have white collar jobs, then you don't actually have anyone who knows how to do anything that, to build the city, right? And there are plenty of examples of this um, in New York, for example, after September 11th. People were bemoaning that the last cement manufacturer in New York had been displaced to New Jersey before September 11th 
right? That, you know, that there were just these basic things that weren't in the city anymore that could have enabled the city to cope better with crisis, right? And that's, that's a whole other environmental disaster, you know, <laughs> that we could talk about, um, which is a long-winded way of saying <laughs> that the working class is an important part of the city. I think it is both social and economic, and I think it needs to be recognized in its importance um, separate from, you know, that it is just as valuable to an urban economy as the creative class. As a uh, resident of Humboldt Park, in an area of realtors were attempting to call West Bucktown, <laughs> um, I would like to hear your take on the function, role, and future of the Bloomingdale Trail, which has sits on a railroad viaduct, or will sit on it, uh, railroad viaduct that had a very interesting and colorful history of its own in terms of its industrial functions. Obviously, it's ceased functioning as such about 15, 20 years ago. Uh, but where do you see something like that? Yeah, and I think part of what um, is concerning about the Bloomingdale Trail is that the High Line in Manhattan is sort of the model. And the High Line is, has been an exclusively very, very upscale, high-end redevelopment in Manhattan. Like that's why it's considered successful is because it has like a luxury hotel located like on it um, that all these high-end restaurants have opened up around it. That indeed the sort of push for getting it redeveloped in the first place was because the meatpacking district in which it's located had already gentrified and there were lots of galleries and restaurants and um, I mean Samantha moves there in Sex in the City. I mean that's how gentrified and mainstream it was. Um, so um, I think the idea of repurposing industrial um, spaces like the Bloomingdale Trail for you know nature and for public access is a great idea, but we had to make sure that it's that you know who is the public that is served, right? And if it's if it's a tool um, for sort of speculation and property development at the um, that, that sort of sacrifices public access of. Um, <clears throat> you know, people who have been deprived of green space for so long, then that's, you know, that's not what we want to do. But I also don't think that something like the Bloomingdale Trail has to be automatically an example of environmental gentrification, right? I think that pe people make the space. So it'll be interesting to see who uses it, who sort of claims the space. Um, and, and I know lots of people who are very excited about it. <clears throat> and so I think, it's, I think it's hopeful, and I think there's potential. But I think also just as you, you know, mentioned its own um, industrial history, we're not hearing about a lot of that in the talk of the Bloomingdale Trail. Um, you know, so it would be nice to sort of recognize what it was and why it matters in that way, as well as isn't it great that we can repurpose it in this fashion? Right? It would be nice to see both. So, but yeah, but again, it's up to us what happens to it. You know, it's not it's not predetermined. That's that's kind of my whole argument. Hi, um, do you view the Greenpoint example as a case of the stars aligning, or are there specific replicable things that can that Pilsen can learn? Yeah, it's a. <clears throat> I mean, there's always some aspect of stars aligning in you know context specific ways, and that's in part. Um, I don't think it's like a textbook model of like if you do A, B, and C, then automatically you can achieve this. But I think it's an example of how you sort of use the resources that you have, and that accomplishing sustainability is about um, 
an ecology of actors, right? That you have, um, you know, a sort of a shifting um, constellation of, of people who are able to affect change, and you sort of use what you can and who you can when you can. Um, so I think you don't, without any of the individual pieces in Greenpoint, it doesn't happen. So it's not just like, oh, um, Superfund is what did it, or the state's suit is what did it. If you didn't have long-standing environmental activists who had been working on this for 30 years, you wouldn't have gotten any of it. So, it, so it's about sort of recognizing the skills and resources that a diverse population can bring to, to the issue and, and listening to that, and sort of recognizing all the diverse stakeholders that are in, in place, um, and sort of understanding that they have, you know, especially long-term neighborhood residents and activists have a sort of resiliency and an agency that needs to be recognized in the process so that we don't just sort of gloss over that. Um, <clears throat> but, but every case will have its sort of particular, you know, sort of magical moment that enables change to happen when it does. So I don't think there's sort of one simple answer that the Greenpoint um, case provides, but simply that it shows that it is possible, like that there are these, you know, moments for a new politics around sustainability. Um, so that everywhere we need to be contesting those politics and not just sort of accept you know, a, a, a redevelopment or a closure of an industrial site as an automatic symbol of environmental gentrification. Uh, so you said people make the place, and I think it's an interesting way of thinking about it, but I think increasingly finance makes the place. And I'm wondering what opportunities we might have to frame gentrification is when any sort of influx of new capital comes into a neighborhood or into a district, there's automatically this this rise to defend the people who have this generational, cultural, and industrial equity in that neighborhood. But how do we get to ways to actually monetize that and take advantage of this new capital that's coming in? What sort of financial or entrepreneurial approaches can we take to make gentrification less of an all-or-nothing proposition? Yeah, and I think that is what um, the Pilsen Alliance and the Pilsen is trying to get at with... Um, the redevelopment of Fisk that part of what they are um, organizing around now is a Pilsen historic district and it, it, it most of, much of Pilsen is a national historic district because of the architecture but to make that a, a living thing that serves the community so to organize um, you know to organize tours that go to people but or that are run by people in the community and money goes to people in the community to use it as an opportunity to start you know new restaurants or stores that are, that are, are sort of small business hubs for neighborhood residents um, to really you know sort of recognize the opportunities that gentrification provides because it again it doesn't have to be this either or thing. Uh, Greenpoint and Williamsburg are, are a good example too that a lot of the demand for the industrial users that can remain in the city these days is from gentrifiers, right? So for stuff like historic preservation, you know, stained glass windows and a lot of the ironwork and that sort of stuff that goes into gentrification requires skills that uh, the working class that's in the city has. So it doesn't have to be, um, you know, one or the other. There are these sort of moments where they can come together. Um, and so I think we need to sort of highlight the possibility of, of those moments. But part of it has to be recognizing that, that then it's sort of not gentrification, right? That we're not about displacement, that sort of part of the, because all of this, you know, part of what makes neighborhoods safe spaces or, or you know, reasonably safe spaces to invest is the way in which the city sort of creates a, a friendly policy environment. 
um, that it signals to developers that these are good places to invest. So how does the city do that in a way that also signals we value the preservation of affordable housing, we value the preservation of any existing industrial land users, that we want, you know, that we want all of these things. It doesn't have to be just one or the other. Um, and I think there absolutely are ways to do that, to you know, preserve industrial zoning, to um, invest money in, in um, you know, entrepreneurial sort of workshops, um, you know, small business incubators that um, give preference to neighborhood residents, um, to build skills. Um, like one of the ideas for, um, for the Fisk site is to do like a, a trade school around green industry for local residents, you know, so that kind of stuff, so that the advantages that come from the um, environmental remediation go to the people who are in the place so that the people who suffered all the negative consequences can also appreciate some of the benefits of remediation then. Um, I work uh, on the private side in the green industry proper, but also work uh, for a couple of different environmental advocacy groups in the area. Um, and a little bit of a confession, I, I'm, I'm concerned sometimes that the environmental movement in particular is guilty of leapfrogging in these communities where they'll, they'll uh, approach a south side neighborhood and tell them, here's, here's your solution. We have it. And as we're leapfrogging, you are going to kick you in the teeth by way of not listening to you and not asking you what you want as, as a, a resident of the neighborhood. And I'm, you know, I'm concerned. I, I think that lines up a little bit with your, your uh, research here um, is that uh, as a movement, the justice piece is a, is a high idea, but in practice it gets ignored. Um, and, and, and it's honestly a convenient way to avoid the difficult conversations, uh, you know, that are, that are racial and social. Um, I, I did also grow up in Michigan, and people in Detroit are always being asked, why don't you just leave? You know, it's, the place is a mess. Uh, you know, shutter the place. Well, I, the answer is people love home. Wherever home is, people love home and, and want to take care of it and want to see it made better. So just, just a few anecdotes, but I'd like to hear your response. Sure. Well, of course, I mean, I'm a geographer, right? So that's what it's all, like, place matters. <laughs> that's what we're all about. That, and that peop, it's people who make the place, as I said before, and are effective, you know, that it's, like, mutually constituting so that people, um, you know, sort of make a neighborhood what it is, but also feed off that, you know, their social networks or that, you know, that a na neighborhood is a lot more than just the place that you have a physical structure that you call home, right? You know, it's, it's so much more than that. Um, and that, I mean, that gets back to, like, even sort of Jane Jacobsian notions of what the city you know that it is best when it is you know organic and diverse and um, and people have a real sort of stake in place um, and that's of course one of the critiques of, of gentrifiers is that they don't have this sort of connection to place that long-term residents do that they're you know sort of in and out neighborhoods become very transitional and sold out you know flipping a property that sort of thing um, and so we will get better neighborhoods and better places if we are able to create that sense of place um, and having a relatively diverse population is, is is part of that but of course it's also the most you know the, the three E's of sustainability right and environment equity um, and economy Equity is the hardest one, <laughs> you know. It's like that's the. There's a reason we haven't addressed it yet. That it gets to. It's connected with the other two things and with a whole lot more, you know, race and class and gender and and you know ability and you know there's it, it is it is messy and it is contested, um, and so there's no sort of easy answer. It's much harder to see the sort of win-win situation that everyone's looking for in sustainable development once we really take a hardcore look at what that equity piece is all about, um, and even you know sort of similar to what you were talking about about the you know environmental. 
um, organizations leapfrogging community concerns, uh, that was part of what went on with the Fisk closure too. You know, some the Pilsen Alliance specifically. You know, the Sierra all of all of a sudden the Sierra Club was in town, and they're like, "Where have you been for decades?" Right? And that the Sierra Club actually received um, fifty million dollars from the Bloomberg philanthropy. So you know, Bloomberg as in Mayor Bloomberg of New York City. Um, on, because they're on this you know, national um, campaign to shut down coal-burning um, power plants. And so that, you know, whose interest is served? You know, what is, where is the impetus for these things coming from? And if it's Michael Bloomberg, then we do have to question, you know, the social equity component, right? Because, you know, recent reports have shown out that homelessness has risen dramatically under Bloomberg's tenure in New York, for example. Um, you know, so so we need to really sort of unpack those connections and sort of highlight those things. And I'm sort of fixated on where how Bloomberg spends his money. I think it's really interesting because it has the potential to really to remake urban planning globally, right? And so how you know how do these things happen? I'm really interested in that sort of nitty gritty. And and so that's very much a part of it. You know, like how is this? Ha- who? Why is this happening? You know, whose interests are being served that this is the way that policy is going? That's what we really need to unpack, I think. Well, I think for the sake of time, we'll let that be the final word. Let's have one more round of applause for Winifred Curran. <laughs> On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Winifred Curran for a thought-provoking and informative program on environmental gentrification. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.